We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Here, Scott Thompson. There you go. What a nice song. You know, it's amazing. Obviously, we lost uh, David Crosby yesterday, age of 81. Um, I think many are surprised he made it to 31. Um, that being said, you, you know, known for their their songs of, 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 of movements of the day, of, of protest of the day, yet they did it with such delicacy. They did it with such harmony. They did it, you know, I mean, there are, you know, it will play Ohio later. It's obviously a more driving song and, and certainly a big protest song. But, um, you know, they just did it in such a a, a fascinating way uh, of getting the message across in such a, in, in harmony, getting the, getting the protest across uh, in harmony. And I heard a funny term the other day, uh, maybe I'm old for not hearing it, but um, someone referred to not necessarily their protest music, but uh, something like a Sweet Judy Blue Eyes or what have you, as Yacht Rock, you know, Seals and Crofts, <laughs> that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. The gang's all here. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Another jam-packed show go- uh, coming up. Um, just all kinds of fascinating news uh, coming up, uh, coming out over the last uh, little while. Healthcare and such. Uh, stories of space. We'll get into to all of that. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the big stories that, that you're going to see later on over the course of the weekend is the chair of the Greenbelt, uh, the current chair of, uh, of the Greenbelt Council is Hazel McCallion. Hazel McCallion, of course, 102 years old, will not give it up, keeps just digging and digging. I mean, you got to love this lady. Uh, anyway, and former incredibly successful long-running mayor of Mississauga, she is the chair of the Greenbelt Council, and she supports Doug Ford's housing and Greenbelt plan. She was there when they created it, and it's like nobody knows what the hell this is all about, and it's time to get some education. And if you think this is an issue now, wait 10, 20, 30, 40 years when the population really explodes. So if you want to make sure we do this right, it's got to be altered all the time, all the time. And she also explains why they're nibbling a little wee piece of it off just to give a bigger piece of it back. It's because it was former land that was ready for development prior to the green belt being there. So it's got service land, unlike the municipalities, which aren't servicing land because they don't want to expound their urban boundaries. So Hazel McCallion, you know, I'm going to read you the line. Where is it? I'm going to read it to you right here as soon as I can find it. This is the last. To stand the test of time, Ontario's Greenbelt must be responsive to opportunities for the evolving and changing realities, she wrote. To have integrity and credibility in the long term, the Greenbelt must be realistic and accountable to the triple bottom line of environmental, economic, and social imperatives. The most recent changes to the Greenbelt plan accomplish that. That's Hazel McCallion she is the chair of the Greenbelt. So, man, I, I wish we could really start to learn both sides of an equation here and, again, find the solution in the center instead of going off to extremes uh, the way we are. Also, want to uh, play you a cool report from uh, Global News' Andrew Graham. This in regard to, we're, we're starting to see lots and lots of movement in regard to reforming uh, Ontario's uh, health care. And I honestly believe that uh, that the provinces have now taken off and, and it's the feds that are falling behind on this. Listen to this. The grant was first introduced in March of last year for students who enroll in certain nursing programs. Premier Ford says the grant will now cover paramedic programs and medical lab technology programs in what the province has labeled priority communities. We'll pay for your tuition, your books, and other direct educational costs for a practical nursing program in London, for a paramedic program in Sudbury, 
or for a medical laboratory program in Windsor. Applications for the Learn and Stay grant open this spring for the next academic year. Andrew Graham, Global News. Uh, there's also chatter, and, and again, there's this whole divide and conquer mentality in politics, and I hate that. And I mean, I'm not, I, I've never been a member of any political party. I voted for all three, so I really hate when people like draw on party lines and, 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 and we don't just solve the problem. Um, and, and it's been suggested that because Doug Ford, who said, yeah, the conditions, no problem, we're here, and started, you know, doing this, uh, making these reforms and such, that he's straying from the provinces. You know, that's what the prime minister's trying to do, because the majority of the premiers in Canada, not all, there's NDP, there's liberal representation, but the rest are all conservative. So, um, you know, here again, the premier is reinforcing this isn't a divide and conquer and that everybody, all the provinces are united in getting a better deal from the feds. Although the feds have said today, there's still a few weeks away. The provinces are moving ahead. I always consult with 12 other premiers uh, on this and it's not going to be a, a, a one-off for Ontario, another for someone else. We, we've all agreed, all the premiers, we all have to work together and uh, stay united. And that's exactly what we're going to do. All right, there you have it. So um, I'm honestly feeling a lot more cautiously optimistic than I think I have in the three years of this global pandemic that, that honestly, some work is being done here. And again, I can't help but keep asking, why did it take until now? And I guess, you know, uh, 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 you know, pandemics will change people's minds, change people's priorities and such. But it just goes to show you how much political uh, bolstering has been going on 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 the provincial, the federal, on everybody's side. And just punting this down the road instead of making actual reforms like we're seeing in Ontario, like we're seeing in British Columbia and other provinces, Nova Scotia, across the country. So, I mean, it's amazing that this is moving forward and maybe, just maybe, it'll be of all things healthcare that bring us together to find a common solution instead of going to the extremes and then trying to claim credit for your team. Man, I just hate politics and what it has all become. Will Erskine has written this and, you know, sheesh, but he's right. Uh, the first COVID-19 update of 2023. Can't we, can we even, can we even make it to the end of the month for this? Uh, no, uh, because, uh, the nickname of Kraken is, uh, is, well, it's, you know. Um, it's 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 around us and it's spreading and it uh, easily spreads. Although uh, again, uh, as these uh, variants have progressed, they have gotten a lot uh, a lot less and less and less and less um, uh, volatile. We'll say. Uh, and uh, as a person who's sitting with it right now, uh, started as the flu. Now it's just a bad cold. Uh, everybody again urging boosters and a reminder and um, that you know it's still out there, even though it is not as bad as it was. However, if you are vulnerable. Uh, and susceptible to this sort of thing. Obviously, it's of great concern. Thomas Tenkate is with us, Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Uh, thanks for having me, and sorry that you're not feeling too well at the moment. Well, you know, it is what it is. But I'll tell you, Thomas, I've certainly had a lot worse. And the last bout or the first bout I had, which I think was Delta, was certainly worse than this. Uh, what can you tell us about where we are? Um, you know, I certainly don't want to minimize any of this because I'm, I'm having, you know, I'm vaccinated and everything. So, um, you know, I'm fine. Um, I don't want to minimize it in any way. But tell us where we are and and that it still is out there, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so I think, you know, what, what's, what's interesting, you know, that, uh, I think at the moment we're getting a lot, lot of, uh, press because of the, the, the name that's been associated with, with this variant, the, the Kraken variant, whereas that's actually not the official name. So World Health Organization doesn't like to use that name, but it, it is a, it is a name that's sort of stuck with this. And, uh, and, and in some ways it's good, good because, it's really highlighting for people that uh, that it is still a, it is around and uh, and uh, we have to be you know cautious of 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 it uh, you know continuing and uh, and you know at the moment as as you were saying before it, it is uh, more transmissible or 
than the than the previous variants, and so so that may basically means that it's more contagious, it's more e- more efficient. The virus is more efficient at being transmitted from one person to another. Now, at the moment, there isn't any evidence to show that it's it's making people sicker. But I suppose you know if you've got more more people getting becoming cases. Uh, you know, proportionally that you you would see a rise in uh, hospitalizations because of, you know, even if you're not getting more and more people proportionally sicker, you've just got a, you know, a larger base yeah. of people who are getting sick who will then likely uh, get, uh, you know, the more severe symptoms as well. So so I think, you know, at this stage, it's, you know, we, we've got the sort of the double whammy of, of coming out of the the Christmas break where there was yeah. a lot more you know contact with people and uh, and we normally see a rise in cases you know at this time through through February anyway but with the more transmissible variant then then I'd like you know I'd expect that we're going to see more cases uh, but uh, I think that the numbers in in hospital will probably sort of they'll, they'll rise a bit but probably not to the same extent that we've seen in previous years. So what is the message to people here um, about where we are with this? Because it's obviously not where we were before in the first wave, second wave. I'm not sure what wave this is. Um, yeah. But uh, but what, what what's your message, Thomas? Yeah. Well, like like I think like I think from my my perspective or from a public health perspective, I'd want people to just uh, just be cautious, you know, say, you know, don't say don't think that it's you know over and we're back to normal there there isn't any normal or pre you know that we're we're in a situation now that we have to consider that respiratory viruses uh with with covid uh with the rsv with the flu season you know we're still sort of tapering in in that we there's a lot of that going around and so we have to be mindful of situations where we're in in you know crowded situations and indoor situations particularly where you you know you're close to lots of other people and so I think in those situations I think it's important for people to to to, to wear masks uh, and and you know as a baseline to uh, you know try and be up to date with with their with their vaccination so so I think there there there's some key things that uh, people need to just keep be mindful of I, I know you know people have you know when I look on on the on the uh, subway and and uh, transit, a lot of people aren't wearing masks anymore. But I think you know this is we're at a situation now where 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 it, I think it's it's important to you know start to mask up again uh, uh, where where you can. Uh, and so so they're just some of the things that you know it's it's nothing more than what we've done before, but it's mm. re-implementing some of those things and and in essence making your own risk assessment of what level of risk is this situation posing and do I pull that mask out of my pocket? And of course, don't forget the uh, boosters vaccinations, getting that all up to date. I guess we've waned a little bit on that because the there isn't as much attention towards it. Yeah, that that's correct. I think uh, you know a lot of people have sort of. You know, sort of take you know, taking the the uh, the the accelerator off in terms of of thinking about the importance of vaccinations. But but when we think about the various prevention measures that we have, the vaccinations are providing that the baseline, and then the other measures build on top of that. And so if you if you don't have that baseline level of protection, then then you 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 it means that you you are at additional risk than what you might have unless unless you did have the the vaccination. So so it is uh, you know people haven't had their their boosters that that it is a good idea to have them. And at this stage, the uh, evidence is that the boosters are uh, are effective uh, or as effective for this variant as they were for the for the other Omicron variants. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, and, and again, 2023, <laughs> the warnings the same. Uh, be aware of the surroundings and, of course, uh, take precautions where needed and get your boosters up to date. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yep. Thanks very much, Scott, and hope you feel better soon. Thanks, pal. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we were talking about this late in the show uh, yesterday. Uh, music icon David Crosby, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, uh, passing away at the age of 81. Uh, colorful life and, um, and, and quite a storied career. Let's bring in Eric Alper, publicist, music commentary, uh, commentator. He is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
everything is great. So uh, many people um, are comparing David Crosby. No, I'm doing this, but it kind of reminds me of the story of Keith Richards, where maybe, or maybe, maybe even Jerry Lee Lewis. Nobody thought he would live this long. He'd had quite a series of uh, health issues and such. This man lived through quite an interesting period in rock and roll. Yeah, and especially when David Crosby himself would be very surprised that he made it this long. In fact, in a lot of interviews throughout his life, people would ask him, how is it that Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison didn't even see the age of 30, but here you are surviving after drug abuse, alcohol abuse, in and out of prison, a liver transplant, um, and seemingly taking every single good and bad drug that was available on the planet. How are you able to survive? And he was even surprised that he lasted this long. He just seemed to be at the right place at the right time with the right voice, with the right guitar playing, and incredibly lucky to be surrounded by amazing people like Graham Nash and Stephen Steeles and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, um, Jackson Brown, the Eagles, Mama Cass. These are all people who who he found as a community. So, um, yeah, certainly I don't think anybody was surprised that he was 81 when he bought away, but certainly, I mean, after six decades of playing music, that's a that's a pretty colorful yeah. life right there. Yeah, really. Um, yeah, this is a little before my time, but certainly enjoyed all of this and discovering it during my my time in classic rock radio. Um, what fascinated me about these guys were just how they would balance everything. Um, they were protest songs and and riveting protest songs at times. And you look at something like Ohio's got a bit more of a drive to it, but then there's other songs. Uh, they're done with harmony, so it's almost like a soft. Protest protest song in a sense the lyrics were biting but the the harmonies were beautiful yeah that was i think one of the main reasons why he's getting credited for having a big part in literally inventing folk rock as we know it um and then creating one of the first and greatest supergroups of all time with crosby steels and nash and then crosby steels nash and young he knew that when certain voices were put together you have to stay together and perform um through you know love and loss and hate um he was always there for the music and he was really honest about it. He would push and drive everybody to be the very best that they could be, whether if it was recording a guitar solo or writing lyrics like Ohio or sweet Judy blue eyes, he would be pushing everything to be better and better. Um, and that's probably why a lot of the fellow musicians and his co-writers and musicians couldn't, couldn't stand working with him after a long period of time because he was honest in both his musical life, but then he might be insulting your wife and just say, well, that's just the way it is. I just call it like I see it. Um, and so when you are in a room with people that just sound like Crosby, Steele's Nash and Young were, it, there's, it's like religious. And David Crosby yeah. knew exactly what to do with it once, uh, once those voices came together. It's amazing how harmonies like that still work, or at least they did then, but these are being exposed to another generation of, of kids that are listening to it as well. But, you know, you talked about, I've heard him been described as prickly, and you think of, uh, you know, what the personality of a Neil Young's like. You wonder how these guys even made it to stay, manage to stay on stage together. <laughs> so I, yeah, you, you know, it's funny. David Crosby went to an interview and he said, um, you know, uh, Steeles is speaking to Nash. Young is speaking to both of them. Nobody's talking to me. Um, yeah. And so therefore he, he understood that he was the problem afterwards. But right now on the iTunes chart, for instance, there's nine of the top 50 songs are David Crosby yeah. uh, generated songs with the birds and Crosby Steele, Nash uh, and Young um, all over it, starting off um, with, uh, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. Ohio is up there. Carry On is up there. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes is up there. Um, and when you're listening to it now with fresh ears, this was all done without computers. That's the yeah. amazing thing about it is that I'm listening to Carry On today. And it was like, yeah, I wonder if the, you know, the young adults and the teenagers and the kids understand that this wasn't programmed that you can just fix it with auto tune. These yeah. were 
four people in a room that had different lives, came from different backgrounds, all singing like this with absolute gorgeous harmony uh, that you couldn't you couldn't create it. There's no way. Um, but you know that's what I think. That's why we're so lucky to always have that music just at our fingertip that we can re-listen to the stuff and just marvel about how how young everything was you know in 66 67 not only did you have these harmonies for the first time in music but you had people write songs for the first time because only really uh, only since like 63 64 were these rock musicians allowed to write their own music and then here they are three years later making up sergeant pepper doing deja vu it's it's astonishing when you think about such a short period of time that these musicians not only played instruments sung really well but they wrote such classic songs that are still relevant today you talked about the simplicity of it, the lack of technology and such. And Will played's uh, American Dream coming in, which, of course, was sort of their rebirth, the commercialization, the 80s thing. And it had that 80s sound to it. And I'm listening to it. It's like, wow, that doesn't even sound like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, because it's, it's got that 80 kind of synth sound to it, you know. But yeah. uh, they seem they seem to transcend all of that stuff. And, and like, I think young people listen to this stuff now, whether it's in a Netflix show or wherever it may show up in the future. Uh and and still gravitate towards that harmony. Yeah, and the meanings, like something like almost yeah. my hair still is relevant. Still is relevant. Or you know, uh, uh, if only I can remember my name. I mean, that classic album from '71. You listen to it now, and it's nothing more than REM and Fleet Foxes and all of these yeah. bands um, 30 years, but you know, prior. Um, and they're yeah. still singing about the things that people are are still talking about the the mental anguish the grief the loss of time the loss of of women in their lives um just finding true love all of that stuff is still relevant and you know even a song like ohio or songs that were very much against the vietnam war we're still yeah. seeing it today with black lives matter it's 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 really wild yeah. Uh, are we hearing those harmonies or harmony we talked about this earlier on with the guitar at one time are we still hearing that in music not really. I think that if you were to turn on a pop radio station now, you would get very barren music. You'd get a, a few piano notes here and there. You'd get electronic drums that are very sparse, not a lot of guitar, not a lot of bass. Um, it's more mood music. That's why today's pop music is getting shorter and shorter and not really dividing up the verses and the choruses together because the thought process is if you like the first 15 seconds of this pop song you're going to love the rest of it because it doesn't change keys it doesn't change <laughs> notes you know you you don't get louder as the song goes on and there's something to it and you know the fact that that philosophy exists with producers and songwriters today um, is the reason why something like TikTok is so huge is because it lends itself to a 30 second video, a one minute video. I don't have to listen like carry on for three and a half minutes to get to the amazing guitar solo. There's none of that around, um, except if you dig a little bit deeper into it. But now, not certainly on commercial radio, you'll never find this stuff. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentary speaking on the passing of David Crosby. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, sir. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, uh, as we're hearing of uh, COVID-19 and uh, the Kraken variant, that's unofficial, of course, um, uh, being uh, becoming more and more predominant, uh, this news uh, especially fascinating, and it's getting a lot of attention. The future of the technology used in the battle against COVID and other viruses is being worked on right here in Hamilton at McMaster University, uh, working on an inhalable vaccine that has entered phase two of human trials. To talk more of all of this, uh, Dr. Matt Miller with us, Associate Professor, Scientific Director, uh, Michael G. DeGroote School uh, Institute, rather, of Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University, and with us here. Uh, Matt, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you very much. I'm well. I hope the same for you. 
So congratulations, first of all, on all the attention that it's getting and all the, obviously the progress that you're making. Um, I guess obviously the advantage of an inhaler, it goes right to the lungs as opposed to having to go through uh, an ejection process and such. But uh, what's your role here versus that of the pharmacy or big pharma? Do you work with them, get the medication, and then try to put it into an inhalant form? Is that what you're doing here? In our case, um, this vaccine has been designed from scratch uh, right mm. at McMaster. The sort of discovery process leverages 30 to 40 years of history in vaccine innovation. So um, our COVID vaccine was designed at Mac, tested um, in small animal models for uh, effectiveness, and the clinical trials have all been done right here in Hamilton. So this does not involve Big Pharma in any way. This is something, even the vaccine itself, that you've developed in Mac. Exactly, yes. So as as we continue along the clinical trial pathway, uh, there may come a time where we partner with Big Pharma um, to roll out the vaccine to the masses. But but at this right. stage, this is entirely federally funded and, and uh, made and tested right here at McMaster. So uh, I think a lot of people would find that astounding right there, considering where we were and where we are now. Uh, is this an mRNA vaccine? Is it is it the traditional type? Uh, what can you tell us? This vaccine is um, viral vectored. So we essentially um, use uh, sort of the, the outside part of a virus as a shell to deliver the vaccine into our lungs. And the reason we do that is because the shell of the virus we're using is naturally good at getting into our lungs. And so it, it makes for a very convenient delivery vehicle um, through which to deliver the vaccine to the respiratory tract. Would uh, a vaccine used in an, in an inhalant be different than one that is injected to you? Um, is, is it the process that different is different or is the actual drug different? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, what's really interesting is that through both prior clinical trials using this technology in humans for the purposes of a um, tuberculosis vaccine, as well as when we've been validating this COVID-19 vaccine in our preclinical studies um, using animal models, we've been able to show that delivery to the respiratory tract is much more effective than delivering the exact same vaccine by injection. The way the vaccine is made, though, is largely similar. The vaccine still comes in sort of a liquid format that gets loaded into um, a device called a nebulizer that then turns that liquid into a colorless, tasteless, odorless aerosol that, that then gets inhaled. This reminds me all, almost of an asthma inhaler. Is this something patients could administer themselves or would you still have to go to a doctor or somebody to get this? At this point, you'd still need to go to a doctor's office. Um, for vaccines, generally speaking, we, we currently don't have any vaccines that are self-administered. And right, the reason yeah. for that is because, of course, very rarely there are people who have uh, severe allergic reactions to to all kinds of vaccines. And and usually those reactions happen in, in a way that's very difficult to predict. So simply out of an abundance of caution from a safety perspective, we always administer vaccines under medical supervision, um, either at a doctor's office, at a, at a vaccination clinic, or even at a pharmacy. So where are you now with this uh, phase two human trials? What does that mean? So right now we're, we're at the end stages of our phase one trials, and we just received funding to help us transition um, you know, basically immediately into phase two. The big difference between phase one and phase two is that in phase one, we typically vaccinate tens of people who belong to sort of a very narrow, tightly defined group of young, healthy individuals. 
In phase three, we're able to expand that to hundreds of people who have diverse medical backgrounds, diverse prior vaccination histories, um, histories of prior infection. And so what that allows us to do is to ensure that our vaccine is effective in a population that much more closely resembles the, the sort of natural population. And, and of course, also to ensure that the vaccine safety profile remains excellent in individuals who have more diverse and complicated medical histories. I uh, don't have much time left. Are others working on this? How big a deal is this for you guys? I mean, this is this sounds pretty big. Yeah, our vaccine is really innovative because in addition to being delivered by inhalation, which is novel relative to what a lot of other groups who are making just nasal spray vaccines, um, we're also using this vaccine in such a way that it that it is sort of variant proof. So in comparison to a lot of other vaccines, our vaccine is specifically designed to maintain effectiveness even as the virus continues to mutate and evolve in the future. Dr. Matt Miller with his associate professor, scientific director, Michael G. DeGroote Institute of uh, for Infectious Disease Research at McMaster University. And they're going into the second stage of their inhalable vaccine. Uh, great progress and certainly getting lots of attention for McMaster University. Matt, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations. Good luck. Thanks very much for having me. All the best. Oh, I keep forgetting to do this. So the prime minister is coming uh, to Hamilton next week. They're like the whole crew is coming. Um, I, I think they're looking for billets if you got an extra room. Uh, anyway, um, or for billeting. Uh, my, my question is, we're, we're trying to get the prime minister on the, uh, on the on the show. Stop laughing. Stop laughing. Uh, so we're going to have a little pool. What do you think our chances are of actually the prime minister coming on this radio show? I think he might be on the radio station, but what's the chance of him coming on this show? Huh? Throw that out there. Mull that over the weekend. We'll chat later. All right. Uh, I think this is great. And, and, oh, I'll read it to you. BC Premier, uh, David Eby and Blueberry River, or Blueberry River Chief Dave, uh, Gilare announced that, uh, what both are calling a very historic agreement in addition to giving a band, uh, an indigenous band, a formal role in natural gas projects in its territory, including 287 million in funding. Uh, also revenue sharing up there as well in northeastern British Columbia. Columbia. We've also heard of a similar deal with a new proposed coal mine in BC. Uh, this, though, I believe coal for steelmaking as opposed to thermal coal. But it just seems to be the exact opposite of the messaging we're hearing from our Prime Minister, uh, which is probably why we don't hear a lot about this. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am good to be here this afternoon on a Friday. So tell me your thoughts on these projects or on this project. And I understand there's also another one regarding coal, a new coal mine. Well, look, on the LNG, or for that matter, any other pipeline, anything that would get our resources to uh, global markets isn't just good for the world. It's obviously very good for Canadians and in particular uh, disadvantaged groups, indigenous groups who have for a long time been frustrated by uh, hijinks by uh, environmental organizations who, uh, funded from abroad, come into Canada, get a couple of indigenous groups, usually a minority, uh, as we saw this uh, certainly with the coastal gas link, and then try to scupper the project with a small uh, but determined group of people who uh, want to prevent Canada uh, and only Canada from being able to send what the world desperately needs energy produced to the highest global standards, which, of course, Canadian energy is, like it or not. Um, this is obviously not something that oil companies and natural gas companies like to talk about because they're, frankly, too shell-shocked with the environment in this country, which is highly toxic uh, towards uh, energy and oil and gas in particular. But this is a win for everyone. And uh, it's good to see the B.C. government is accepting that the Monty project, which, of course, Monty is some of the richest fields for natural gas anywhere in the world. And it will uh, certainly buttress the uh, notion that Canada can, in fact, get natural gas to global markets. Uh, so the uh, partnership uh, that has been uh, established uh, and thankfully well publicized, uh, no doubt will su suffer the same kind of attacks from 
green uh, activists, but I think with a twist this time. I think most Canadians see it as an extraordinarily fair move and a timely move to have our First Nations involved with uh, not just a question of governance, but in terms of uh, anything else, the distribution of the assets that, uh, that on which they stand. And so I think this is a uh, this is a very welcome move, uh, which I think the federal, provincial, uh, and other governments and industry and Canadians support and should support. Uh, I still have a hard time believing this is going on in the NDP province of British Columbia. Does the Prime Minister, obviously he's aware of this, I don't want to be cynical, but how how is he seeing a business case for this? And I agree, but doesn't for anything else. Well, let him try to use that rhetoric against uh, our Indigenous people. He can't. Is that what the difference is here? Is like because, you know, there's an an Indigenous community element here and they're getting part of the money? Oh, then it's okay? And again, I agree with I agree with this a hundred percent. But it just seems that he's he he's he's hypocritical here. Well, think of many of the projects that have gone in in the past for which there has been no support by this government, and it has you know re, re, refused to allow um, you know indigenous led projects that are driven by uh, need, but also driven by capitalization of these projects, and up to now have been really fraught with, you know, back and forth battles. I think this is, uh, you know, extraordinarily good news. And uh, I, I think the, the gauntlet has been dropped. Let the federal government and the liberals and the woke types try to attack this. And I think if they do, it will demonstrate for all Canadians here, especially in Hamilton and Toronto, the GTA, the Golden Horseshoe, uh, just how fanatical the federal uh, government could be if it is prepared to oppose something that will have a material positive implication and impact on our indigenous people for generations to come and so you know it's going to be hard for them to fight back on this and play this game of oh climate change and you know canada's responsible we're all bad and you know this can't happen i think canadians are willing to push back on that and at the end of the day this is something that benefits all of us why should indigenous people be reliant on my tax dollars or your tax dollars to do what they could otherwise do i think this gives them independence to do what they have always sought to do, but was frustrated by these green activists and organizations who spent millions of dollars using Canada as a soft target and hurting our indigenous communities as well as Canadians. This will bring up the value of the Canadian dollar, slow down inflation, get our get our products to market, and maybe make a few billion bucks for the Canadian economy so that we can pay for things like our hospitals and our social programs. Uh, we only got a few seconds left, and it's not enough to talk about this, Dan. But uh, do you think Canadians are aware that there's a new proposed coal mine? I understand this is for steel making, not thermal. But do you think Canadians are aware of that? There's a new coal mine proposed for British Columbia. Well, they're not aware of it, and they should be aware of it. And uh, it will again, you know, stretch the credulity of the environmentalists to try to attack it. Again, this is made for thermal, not for thermal coal, but for uh, production of steel yeah. and other products. I think uh, it'll make it much easier. Uh, you know, once we realize that this is not for the things they think. And, of course, at the end of the day, the world is still going to use coal. Ask Germany how that's going these days. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. This discussion just gets more bizarre as the days go by. Uh, Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. <laughs> thanks, Scott. You have a great weekend, too. Bye for now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've certainly heard about this uh, recently, and it seems to be gaining a bit of steam. Microsoft, Google, and and even Amazon have made uh, the news in recent days uh, for the layoffs of large amount of employees. Is this something specific to the tech sector, considering where we are uh, in or out of this global pandemic? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So what does this say? How do you read this? Is this tough times for tech or is it uh, this is the fallout of everything we did during the last three years of a global pandemic where obviously the only aircraft you saw in the skies were were from, you know, (laughs) places like FedEx delivering all of these products. So obviously took a huge upswing during that time. Uh, Does that have anything to do with any of this? I mean, how do you or, or is it is it is it retail? Is it tech? What are your thoughts? I would say not just anything, Scott, but everything. And if you yeah. look at the numbers, I mean, certainly if you are one of those 
you know, 12,000 from Google Parent Alphabet today, if you're one of the 18,000 working for Amazon or the 10,000 working for Microsoft or any other Salesforce, Shopify, Hootsuite, you name it, there's just been this never-ending list of tech companies that have been reporting layoffs. Um, but they all do seem to have the same uh, the same root cause. And terrible if it's you, but the reality is it's, it's well understood. Uh, the pandemic hit and society as a whole pivoted. We all shifted. We we were locked down at home. We weren't going to the office. We weren't going to physical malls, stores, locations, anything like that. And so we leaned heavily on digital services. Everything was e-commerce. We ordered everything out, had it delivered. Uh, and the infrastructure to make that happen uh, obviously needed more resourcing. So companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Google uh, did incredibly well because demand for their services absolutely skyrocketed. And so they hired on people like crazy they were just bringing them on. They couldn't hire them fast enough. And then, of course, now we're on the, the, the back end of the pandemic. Of course, it's still on, but you know that, that steep demand curve isn't there anymore. And a lot of the, that early demand that we saw as we slowly start to go back to something equating normality, uh, that is starting to ebb. And so they don't need all the people that they hire. They can, what they like to call right size. Mark Zuckerberg, the, the founder of Meta said, uh, and very famously said, he admitted they overhired. Uh, and they've got to dial it back. That's the the context. The good news is the numbers of the layoffs that we're seeing are really tiny compared to how many people they brought on. So hmm. the Microsoft, even after they get rid of 10,000 people, they're still a lot bigger than they were before the pandemic hit. Same thing with Amazon. Amazon went from $1.3 million million employees before the pandemic to $1.6 million. So, you know, against that, 18000 doesn't look like a heck of a lot, and the companies are still larger. So I think what we're seeing is, well, you know, the clouds are starting to gather on the horizon. Tech is always a bit of a bellwether sector. And so they're pulling back, starting to rationalize, starting to sharpen those pencils a little bit. Uh, we've seen this play out during other or in the lead up to other recessions before. And that's exactly what's happening here. It doesn't mean that they're, they're all about to go out of business. It doesn't mean that we should scream that the sky is falling. Uh, it just means that rationality is starting to come into play because they can no longer rely on double digit growth and really cheap money to fund the party. The party is over, but they're still out there. <laughs> Yeah, good point too. So you know, you got an on what people think of as an oncoming recession. We don't know. That's mm-hmm. not. I don't even want to say predict that. Uh, and then obviously, what's happened with the pandemic and such. That being said, is there any more industry that is more kind of recession proof than uh, than this type of industry? Because it even seems to be still the most efficient way of doing things. Yeah, well, that's it. You've just busted me, Scott, because that's why I'm in tech to begin with. (laughs) It's the, you know, and one of the things that's always fascinated me about technology is just the way it kind of digs roots into the rest of society. And in fact, if you are looking for a career path that does have opportunity, tech is the place to go because even during recession, Companies are investing in technology in order to be more innovative, be more efficient, be more creative, be more competitive. Uh, and so, uh, you know, tech has always done very well uh, in times of adversity, simply because that's the tool that you hold on to to survive. Uh, and so I think, and, and, and quite frankly, I think people like cool new things. I think technology changes the way that we live. I think it forces mm. us to rethink old habits uh, and maybe stop doing things the way we've always been doing them just because no one ever bothered asking the question. And I think this is where tech really shines. We've often seen huge innovations like the commercial internet, like smartphones. Uh, these all took off after a recession. You know, the PC revolution happened just after the recession in the early 80s. The smartphone revolution happened just after the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. The reason being, we're all struggling. We need technology to pull us out of a hole. And I, I, I suspect, and thankfully, it looks like, again, I'm not an economist, but the indicators are not as dire this time as they were in 2008. But I would expect the technology will do exactly the same thing going to make life better going forward and i yes i look through life through rose-colored glasses but uh history you can't argue with it it's happened before it'll happen again uh canada announcing today that it's trying to uh, attract more and 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 have more of a local space agency space industry um and, and perhaps even liftoffs and such from here what does that say because again there was a time when everybody was you know getting upset with elon musk for sending tourists into space but we still realize this is cutting edge technology 
business is business and Canada has always been very well positioned for the kinds of high tech jobs that feed the space industry. You know, don't forget that, that the Canada arm on space shuttle came from here. Yeah. A lot of the robotics on the, the International Space Station, including Canada arm two, um, come from Canada and we're developing Canada arm three for the gateway space station for lunar orbit. So we've always been front and center in a lot of really innovative technologies for space. And it speaks volumes about Canada's tech industry and our ability to have these incredible skills in our workforce that we can leverage on a global scale. So yeah, we might not like Elon Musk all that much. He's pretty odious individual, but truth of the matter is he's opening up or his company is opening up less expensive access to space that drives opportunities like what the government is talking about today. So good on Ottawa for recognizing that Canada wants to be front of the line and we have a lot of money to make here and a lot of really cool jobs to be developed in the years to come because of the announcement that we saw today. Carmen Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist uh, talking about the state of tech right now and, of course, the future. Carmen, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a good weekend. So great being here, Scott. You as well. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Um, another big issue, let's put healthcare off to the side for a sec, is housing. And, man, we've been talking about this for 100 years, it seems, and uh, certainly the green belt and what have you. And I've tried to find out as much as I could about the green belt and what it is all about. And from what I can understand about the green belt is it's not something that's rubber stamped and then you leave it. Because the problems that we're facing right now, uh, 10, 20, and 30 years from now, will even just be bigger. Uh, because there is another side to the green belt where development is also coming in. So, um, you know, it, it's, uh, and I don't think the green belt, uh, the green belt was designed in such a way that it wasn't supposed to be updated. And I don't mean sucking stuff out of it or anything like that. I'm a supporter of the green belt, but it just seems the rhetoric that's gone on lately and what's going on about building in the green belt, uh, has, uh, it's just been, um, uh, well, it's got to a boiling point. And obviously with the housing crisis that we're facing, uh, now every political party wants to build houses, uh, last election, uh, the election before the one we just had, nobody did. Nobody even talked about it. So uh, it's fascinating where we are. And Hazel McCallion, who you'll remember is a uh, long-running, uh, standing former mayor of uh, Mississauga, uh, 102 years old, and she's still at it. And she is um, uh, counsel for the Greenbelt, head of the council, the Greenbelt Council. And, uh, sorry, a current council chair. Current Greenbelt Council chair endorses this Greenbelt plan in an open letter uh, to Ontario Premier Doug Ford and basically says that everybody needs to learn more about the Green Belt and pay attention to it and then get involved in what is going on moving forward. Uh, but it, it, you know, it comes right out and basically supports what Ford is doing, meaning most of us have really no idea what is going on. Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies, and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. So what are your thoughts on this um, uh, and and this comment from Hazel McCallion, which also uh, obviously carries a, a bit of clout to it? Uh, nothing set in stone. We have to continue, c- continually massage this and address this. Is this going to resonate or is it, no, just don't touch? Uh, well, to be fair, the Ford government did say it would be tightening the, the belt of the Ontario government, which by extension, I guess, is the green belt during the campaign. So I, I think he was somewhat clear on that one. But all jokes aside, she's been a longtime friend and ally of the premier. So I think if you were against expanding the green belt, even with her comments, it's not going to really change your position too much. So how uh, does this not lead credibility to this situation? It seems that, again, you say Greenbelt, everybody stands up and screams, and and a lot don't really understand what was going on or what is going on, in specific with the area he's talking about opening up, um, was already serviced prior to a Greenbelt distinction and therefore makes this certain uh, alteration practical. Are we even having those discussions? 
no, we're not. Especially how those that are in favor of the of keeping the green belt as it is, they are very much trying to make this as a black and white issue. Not talking about the details like you just went into. They're spinning it and telling people in Ontario that Doug Ford is here to chop down the green belt and help his development friends out. And that's not exactly what's happening. Like you pointed out uh, just a moment ago, that there's a, it's a little bit more of a complicated issue than that. But most people aren't paying that great of attention to politics. So when they see the headline, Doug Ford attacks the green belt, they just assume that he's cutting down trees to build houses. And that's not exactly what's happening here. Uh, and also, um, you were talking about it being black and white. It was never set out to be that way. It was set out to, you know, update, evaluate, talk about population growth and such. Because if you look at the area around the green belt and how much space is there, they say, I don't know, 20 to 40 years worth of housing before you even really need to touch it. But this problem is not going to go away. This has to be involved with development for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. It's just like anything in conservation, you need to consider kind of how it evolves and changes. And I think to the credit of the Ford government, that's what they're trying to do with this change. But a lot of people, they, they don't want to see it shrink. They don't want to see it expand. They just want it to stay the same. So I think that's where the frustration from the average person in Ontario is, is that it's a very complicated uh, thing, the Green Belt. And it's hard to explain to people. Uh, I was just going to say, so obviously communication, a key here. I mean, you know, many have said he's adding more than he's taking away. So it's not really shrinking. Um, what is it that's going to take to get that message or reality across? Uh, I think a very complicated and long uh, communications plan coming from this government if they want to see this get done with a limited political blowback. Look, we, when most Canadians think of the Green Belt, they think of like uh, – a farmland that they drive past in the four one. They don't actually understand how big the green belt is and where it is. And this kind of gets into the territory of like not in my backyard because those that are around the green belt don't want it to change because they don't want their property value to be suffered by that. So it, it's a lot of finger pointing in that sense. And a lot of people just being like, I love the green belt and I want to keep it because it's right beside my house. I don't want more houses built there. I don't want the traffic. So I think people in Ontario really need to think about this and think about the impact it will have if we do build more houses and how it might be nice for some renters to get some relief and be able to move into their own home. I kind of reminds you of healthcare in that respect. Um, does, and again, and again, you know, I'm looking down the road and what people aren't realizing is there's going to be pressure if there isn't already on the other side of the green belt as it comes down. It's not just the GTHA moving up. Mm -hmm. The green belt spreads across par uh, parts of Ontario too. It's not just specifically yeah. right, in right in Hamilton, Toronto and Markham, but it, it goes all the way up. Uh, past Owen Sound, technically. Like, it is a very big area. All right. Joining us, Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies, talking about the Green Belt. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. All right. Uh, Hazel McCallion, former mayor of Mississauga and current Green Belt Councillor Chair, uh, says that uh, what Doug Ford is doing and the plan for housing and adding more to the Green Belt as well as taking from it is the way to go. Is anybody listening? You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, it, it appears that... Um, uh, this government, uh, the federal government, has another um, uh, another situation on its hands where Housing Minister Ahmad Hussein's office uh, last Thursday admitted that uh, a senior staffer, their sister of, is the director of a foodie communications firm that is receiving money uh, from the federal government. Obviously, this is a uh, conflict of interest. Uh, the company that has been receiving the lucrative contracts to help with the York South Weston MP reach out to his constituents. To talk more about all of this, Duff Conacher is with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch and here now. Thanks for the time, Duff. What are your thoughts on this? This just seems to be never-ending. Uh, well, there's key questions that have to be answered. There are rules that apply. Uh, you can't give uh, preferential treatment to anyone um, based on someone who represents the person or, or entity. Uh, you can't use inside information to further interests of your family or friends or yourself or improperly further another person's or ent entity's interests uh, and you can't take part in any 
decisions in which you would improperly further another person's interests. And so with not just uh, Minister Hussein, but also the other two ministers who have handed out these kind of communications contracts, uh, Minister Tassi and Minister O'Regan, the key question is, did the people they've handed the contracts to have relationships with anyone in the office or do favors for them, like helping them get elected in the last election? And if so, then it would be improper to be handing them the public's money out in uh, contracts. Wouldn't that include reaching out to constituents? Uh, in terms of uh, contracts? Well, if you're using the, the these uh, these services, these contracts to specifically reach out to your constituents, yes, so you're using it, it for business. Um, but again, the key is: were there relationships that uh, or uh, favors that were done by the people who have received the contracts that influenced the handing out of the contracts? And so, with Minister Hussein, um, the sister of the woman. Uh, whose company received the contracts, works for the minister. Did she tip off her sister? The minister was looking for this kind of um, uh, service, communications help. And if she tipped off her sister, then she gave her sister preferential treatment because she didn't tip off everybody. If she became involved in any way in trying to push the contract towards her sister's company, then uh, that would be a violation too, because you'd be uh, trying to influence a decision that, you, uh, that would favor a relative. With regard to Minister Tassi, uh, the person who did the contracts for her, a professor at um, McMaster University, uh, also worked on her campaign. So did he volunteer for her campaign and, and help her win election? Well, that would be a favor, and then it would be improper for her to then hand public money to him in the form of a contract. Ministers and MPs are allowed to hire friends and campaigners for them as their staff. That's the one exemption. Mm -hmm. And we have that exemption because it's recognized that they want loyal people to be their yeah. staff people. Yeah, makes sense. But contracts are different. And I think a lot of ministers and MPs are probably confused because they look at the, the what's called the Board of Internal Economy, which runs the House of Commons and has a manual with rules in it. And those rules say you can't hand contracts to family members, but doesn't mention anything about friends or people who might have helped you uh, win the election. But it's not just those rules that apply. The ethics rules also apply. And the ethics rules say you can't give preferential treatment. You can't further the interests of your family members or friends. Uh, you can't use inside information to improperly further anyone's interests or improperly further interests in any other way. And of course, it's improper to, if someone helped you get elected, to then hand them a contract using the public's money because that's just, you know, they scratched your back, they did you a favor, and you're returning the favor by handing them money. That's That obviously is improper. And so there's questions about all three of these ministers, uh, Minister Hussein, but also Minister Tassi, and also Minister... Uh, Shauna Reagan, um, who also handed out a contract to a guy. I haven't been able to figure out whether that guy did any favors for Shauna, uh, for uh, Seamus, sorry, Seamus O'Regan. But if he did, then you can't return the favor by handing uh, the person who did you the favor a, a public money contract. We only got a few seconds left. Do you think this was intentional? You used the word confusing earlier. So could this just be an honest mistake? Uh, no, it shouldn't be. They know the ethics rules, and the ethics rules apply in every situation. Uh, and so there aren't rules that override those. You, you just cannot be furthering your own interests, the interests of friends, family, or improperly further another person's interests of someone who did a favor for you. So those are blanket rules. They, they've existed since 2004. There'd be no excuse for violating those rules. All right, Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Uh, Duff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend. You can tell us whether you think the Prime Minister, when he's in town next week, will come on my show. And all I have to do is text yes or no, and we'll take all of the above and then make a draw from wherever. And, you know, they're slightly leaning towards no. What's that? They're all no so far. Uh, so anyway, he's in town next week. We're trying to get him on. So uh, we're having a little contest whether you think he will come on my show. I think he'll be on the station, but I'm not. Will he come on with me? And um, we're going to have a contest. You either talk, text, yes or no, 
Send us an email, scottthompson at 900chml.com, yes or no, and uh, we'll divide up, uh, you know, depending upon the outcome, and uh, draw a winner. There you go. All right, uh, just one more rate hike at the bank, right, at the Bank of Canada. Just one? Is that what we're expecting? Uh, coming up next Wednesday, let's bring in Eric Cam, Professor of Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm very well, and if he shows up on your show or Roy Green's show, I got a hundred bucks to your favorite charity because I got news for you. He's not coming near either of you. You know what? It was funny because one listener sent me a note and said, yeah, he's coming on your show right after he does Roy Green. So there you go. Um, all right, so it looks like we're going to get uh, another bank rate hike. They're saying it may not be as much, but you know, we, like we've been ever able to predict that. Is it better to do this while you're doing it, and then if we need to pull back, We'll, we'll drop it again. What are you expecting come, uh, come Wednesday? Well, I mean, I'm going to hedge my bet and tell you I actually was expecting nothing. I didn't think they were going to do anything because things like consumption and investment spending are trending in the right direction. But, you know, I, I've been wrong before. I've been married twice. So this is just one more thing that I probably <laughs> guessed incorrectly. It looks to me like they're going to go 0.25 higher. And if they do, then at least you're being given something solid by the Bank of Canada and the government of Canada to say that we are just happy with the trend, but we are not there yet. And that probably shouldn't surprise anybody because we know that the economy, much like any other thing that is continuous and dynamic, we can take a snapshot of it and it says right now we're heading in the right direction. But if you really want to ensure that that continues and gets to the target, which I assume is still 2%, then you raise one more time and you do that to ensure the downward correction continues. So that's a really long-winded way of saying 0.25. Yeah, that's probably what's going to happen, which is just the bank's way of of coming out of the closet and saying we're not there yet, Scott. So why not of a half point as they have done in the past? Because it's not a perfect science. And, and that's what the problem, and I always say this, we're not physics. We don't get to walk into a laboratory, pull a lever and watch what happens, right? Our laboratory is the world. And sadly, our lab rats are the 38 million people that live in this country. So there's going to be a time lag in everything you do and the best thing to do is just continue the program slowly, but you don't want to get on that knife's edge where you go one step too far and you put the economy into a recession. The government's really trying to resist that. So it's a very delicate balancing act. Where do we raise the rates to? Where do we want consumption to be? Where do we want investment to be? And so it's a lot of balls in the air at one time. So rather than push it over the proverbial edge, they've, they've decided to just kind of stay the course and continue hoping to stay on the right side of GDP. Is there any any reason to believe that once this settles down a bit and, and, and the rate settles where it is, that it will drop a bit? Or are, are those days behind us now? If you mean will gross domestic product drop a bit, I think it will drop a bit, but I don't mm. think that that's the fear for tomorrow. You know, this quote unquote recession that people think we're in, we're not. Because by the de very definition of recession, that's two quarters of real GDP falling, and that hasn't happened yet. It's just something that everybody's expecting to happen, including me. And so you say, well, why do you think it's going to happen? Because the raising of the rates and the rising of prices has cycled through pretty much every market in the economy except for one, and that's the labor market. And that's the one that we're worried about, because when it hits the labor market, we don't want too many people unemployed. So it goes back to my balls in the air story. There's a lot of things working at once. We want the consumption levels to fall, the investment levels to fall, but we don't want them to fall so much that we take the meat out of the labor market, as they say, and put too many people out of work and onto the couch. So the government's just kind of doing the, the careful step here. You know, it's trying to do what they know has worked because it is working, but they don't want it to work too fast. How close are we to whatever the new normal is or are we? Do we still have a ways to go either way? I think. I think you're getting closer to the new normal. I sure hope the new normal isn't six and a half percent inflation. I mean, the Bank of Canada sits there with their web page. You can go to it right now. And it says that we're going to keep inflation at two percent. So I assume that the government wants the numbers to fall even farther than that. Plus, 
If you've been to the grocery store and you walk past the lettuce aisle at $5.99, I hope that prices are going to take a little bit of a tumble too in the long run. Now, are we ever going to get back to where we were pre-pandemic? That's probably wishful thinking. But I sure hope that both prices and the cost of borrowing money have a way to fall. I just hope they have a way to fall before it takes gross domestic product down with it. Uh, let's change gears to healthcare. A lot of chatter about this between the provinces and the feds, blah, 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 blah. We know all of that. And then all of a sudden, boom, Doug Ford uh, announces um, not really great reform because we're already doing this, but certainly expansion of, of what we have been doing and trying to relieve some of the lineups and congestion in hospitals. Uh, many are screaming foul, but I think many more are saying this is a pretty good idea. What are your thoughts here? I have one thought. This is a time that that has been 30 years. We should have been looking into this 30 years ago to yeah. take the pressure off the healthcare system. We and what we've got to stop, we've got to stop the hysteria of people thinking, "Oh my god, they're coming to take away my healthcare and I'm going to have no healthcare." That's not what's going on. What this is is a is a uh, an announcement to the population of Canada that we can't go on like this. The system is getting crushed. It is imploding under its own weight. And if we don't start investigating private outcomes, the system is is going to unravel. And in fact, it already is unraveling. How many times do we have to have ERs that are full and no beds available? What they're trying to do is say, let's look at options. Let's investigate what private sector can do to help public sector health care. We're not trying to take away anyone's health care. We're not going to deny one person the right to health care. But what we're saying is maybe the people that are willing to pull out their wallets and walk into a different line at a different clinic, maybe that's not a bad idea because it's going to relieve the line at the clinic for people that can't afford to take out their credit card. This is 30 years, Scott, in the coming, and I'm so glad we're finally here. I uh, only got a few seconds left. That was the first thing I thought of as soon as Ford announced this. Like, it, 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 did anybody die? What happened here? Why did this take so long? It took so long because people are afraid, and I don't blame people. A lot of people came to this country for the promise of health care, but they're just so, as soon as they hear private and health care together, they think, oh my God, we're going to be in the USA where some people have no protections, and that's just not the case. All right, Eric Cam with us, professor of economics, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay healthy, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. David wrote in to say, Hello, Scott. Will these space launchers have a zero carbon production and be powered by solar or windmills? Or will they be like the aircraft used by the Trudeau Singh government to jet across the country and around the world and use non-carbon producing fossil fuels? Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.